0: men if you would be take your bibles and turn with me to the book of ecclesiastes <clears throat> we are in chapter 7 Ecclesiastes 7 we'll be reading verses 25 to 29 this morning Ecclesiastes chapter 7, picking up in verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, the God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you might nourish us through your living and abiding word, that your word would have its place in our hearts, regardless of the weakness of my words. May your good word fulfill its purpose in our lives this morning and as we continue to go about our week. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Someone had once said that If you go down deep enough into anything, you'll find mathematics. For those of you who love math, that might be really encouraging. You might be, yes, that's absolutely true. For those of you who don't like math, you probably don't even want to think about that. You don't want anything to do with math. But to some degree, I think I have to agree, though I don't think this person intended it in the way that I'm thinking about it. Because life sort of does consist of a lot of complex mathematical equations. Not always so complex, some are very simple. But we give our lives to different things, to do in pursuing things, and adding different things in order that the end result will be something that we desire. As we pick up a a desk, it comes in pieces, we put it together, add this and this and that, and hopefully we'll get a desk. If we take a recipe together and add ingredients together, then hopefully we'll get a cake or a set of cookies. But we get into trouble, right? When we put the desk together, we still find pieces that we don't know where they go. Well, something's not quite adding up. Or sometimes we put all the recipes together and for whatever reason, the cake still tastes bitter. Or sometimes we put in efforts, we put in our diligence, our time and energy, add these together and we hope that the end result will be something that we desire, whether it's a diploma, whether it's a job promotion, whether it's whatever it is we desire. And sometimes it just doesn't add up. Sometimes... We say that, well, we will do this, we will be gracious, we will be kind, we will be consistent, and we will do the right things with our children that hopefully this will produce children who will be obedient to the rest of the day and that sometimes that's not always the case. Our passage lends itself to considering two astronomical math problems that have everything to do with us personally and with everyone in the world. Now, first heading considers... What happens when sin is introduced to a divine equation? This first setting is that sin makes righteousness impossible. So verse 25, the teacher says, I turn my heart to know and to search and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He continues to verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another. To find the scheme of things. And then he says, to conclude, this alone I found in verse 29 that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The word schemes, they sort of confusing. Now, if you don't know the original language, it's helpful to look at other versions of the Bible, like the NIV or the NASB, which are really helpful at times, to try to figure out what exactly the word schemes here is. Here means, the word schemes here can kind of mean the reckoning of things. It's trying to find things out, how things work out, how things sort of calculate. And so what we have here is a picture of the teacher, the wise, King Solomon, sort of putting together some equations, trying to figure things out, putting this and this and that together and see what he comes up with. And here he seems to be writing with the book of Genesis in mind, particularly chapters 1 through 3, And it's not the first time he's done this. He's done this earlier in the book. And what we see in the book of Genesis, in chapters one and two, right, that God made everything good, that God made everything right. After each day, God said, It is good, it is good, it is good. Then you get to the last day, it is very good. And God, because he is a good God, we can expect and trust that he only creates good things. The Bible tells us about God, that God is a source of wisdom and is all wise. Job twelve thirteen, Proverbs 2, 6. We know from the scriptures that God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Psalm 34, 8 tells us that God is good. Another one that we know so well is that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. We know that God is gracious, merciful, long-suffering. We know from the angel's declaration in the book of Isaiah that God is holy, holy, holy. And all of these things, what we come to know about God helps us to better interpret what's going on in the book of Genesis. It helps us to understand that what God creates is good because God himself is good and in him there is no darkness, there is no evil in God, there is no sin in God. Everything that he creates is good. And so we look at a passage here it says that God made man upright. That is so because that is what God does. God creates man in his own image. He is the potter. We are the clay. And for us to be made in the image of God, it's, it's a lot there to sort of unpack and understand. It speaks to our emotional life, to our spiritual life. It speaks to our intellect. It speaks to our relationships with one another, but it also tells us, what the image of God tells us is that when God creates man, that God creates him with, creates him with this particular magnificent luster that is about him, not just in physical appearance, but just any, everything in his inner life reflects the image of the glory of God. Earlier, the teacher says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God made everything beautiful in its time because this is what God does. And so when he creates man, he creates man with also an original righteousness. Not the kind of righteousness that you and I are familiar with through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ is our righteousness, that Christ fulfills all righteousness, that Christ perfectly fulfills all the commands of God without sin, And that through our faith in him, his righteousness becomes ours. Not that particular kind of righteousness, but a righteousness that Adam and Eve had where they had no sin in them, where they have yet to commit any sin. And so what we have here is the the teacher sort of using the super computer of his mind, uses his keen intellect, his wisdom and insight, all that he has learned, all that he has considered, All that he's understood, he tries to bring all of this together, add it all together, multiply it all together, and no matter how many times he runs the calculations, he comes up with the same answer, and that is that man is sinful. God made man upright, but man was looking for other things, going beyond his limits, desirous of things that he should not have been desirous of, trying to understand things that are not his to understand. And because of this sort of searching out of things, leads to this conclusion that man was once upright, but he's certainly not anymore. But why? How? How is that? How does that, actually, that, 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 does that happen? And again, he seems to ground what he's saying in the book of Genesis. And what we see in the book of Genesis in chapter 3 is that when you have Adam and Eve in they're sort of in the original righteousness, but then you have the introduction of another character in the story, and that is the serpent who is the devil. And he comes into the garden and tempts Adam and Eve with an equation and if you take yourself and you take this forbidden fruit that God has told you to not eat of, if you add those two things together, what you'll get is a godness. You'll get a godlikeness. You want to be like God, then take the fruit and eat it. This is what it will equal to. And so men searching out for different schemes, the reckonings of things, trying to understand and search for things that was not his to search and understand, takes the fruit and eats and instead of being like God, he becomes less like God. And intending to create something that was more like God, instead man becomes more like Victor Frankenstein, and creates something that still bears the resemblance of the original creator, but it's defaced, it's scarred. And now all people everywhere bear the same resemblance as Adam, more so of Adam than the original creator who is God. And from this, and many other passages in scriptures where we get this idea known as federal representation or federal headship. We see this many places in the scriptures, but we see this particularly in 1 Corinthians. We see this in Romans chapter 5, where the sin of one affects all, where the sin of one is the sin of all. In other words, the one represents the many. And this is sort of a strange concept for us and sort of in our Western society and culture, but this is exactly how the Bible understands our relationship with Adam, who is actually the father of us all. So one way to think about it is, God treats, doesn't treat every single person as sort of stalks of corn in a large field, right? where each, corn is, is each stalk of corn is its own stalk. One might be diseased, but the others are not. One might be good and the others might not be very good. Take one out, the others might be fine. God doesn't treat man in that way as individual stocks, but instead God treats man sort of a tree, where Adam is the root of the tree and the branches is everyone, everybody else. And so if the root of the tree is diseased, well then so also are the branches as well. The theologian Herman Banvinck says, "Adam and Eve sinned not only as individuals, as persons, but they sinned also as husband and wife, as father and mother. They were playing with their own destiny, with the destiny of their family and with the destiny of the entire human race." You might think, well, that's unfair. How right? is the sin of one man then, then credited to my account as if I had sinned as well, as if his guilt is my guilt as well? But what would be the alternative? right? If Adam had continued in his original righteousness, if he had withstood the temptation of the devil and continued to follow the Lord, his promise would have been eternal life. Right? You and I would not find ourselves and the fallen world that we live in today, if Adam had continued to walk in that righteousness, and though therefore our, his righteousness would have been ours as well, and then we wouldn't have seen a problem with that. And this also that affects the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we'll get to later. So his conclusions is that man was once upright, but he is no longer and then what sin produces is produces malicious people verse 26 it says and i find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters he who pleases god escapes her but the sinner is taken by her so he comes to discover something and that there are women in the world who deceive and trick men and his point is that the life of wisdom avoids such women. And he has this particular concern with this. And we read in the book of Proverbs, which is largely also written by the wise teacher as well, his concern to give the young man wisdom and instruction for many different reasons. But one of those reasons is to protect him from the mischievous woman of the world. Proverbs 5.1 says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol, she does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander and she does not know it. There is a concern for the young man to not be held sway by such a person because ultimately it will lead to self-ruination. Right for a moment of indiscretion, right? You forfeit, you put at risk your finances, your marriage, your relationship with your children, your reputation, your personal honor, all to ruin because of one little moment. No, I don't think he's a misogynist, sort of picking at the women. I mean, elsewhere in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, he actually commends the life of marriage and husbands and wives honoring one another. But I think in part, he actually is writing from a biographical point of view. Because the kind of person that he is warning his reader against a the kind of person, actually, he's sort of used to. He warns that these, that these particular women of the world are like sirens, like Homer's The Iliad, whose mission was to sort of allure the sailors with their enchanting and beguiling songs that would ultimately lead them to destruction. Destruction. What we have here is a picture of a carnal person who knows to, how to appease to the carnal desires of others. This is a godless person, a person who is foolish, does not regard their own marriage vows, nor does they, do they regard the marriage vows of another. They don't care about it. They don't care for God. They have no regard for God. And while this is maybe biographical, the teacher also speaks as a man. I think think we would expect that if the teacher happened to be a woman, he would have some things to say about those charming men of the world as well who also lead women captive. But the culpability is not just on the woman, but the culpability is also on the man as well. Because sin not only produces sinful people and malicious people, but sin also produces senseless people. If the man that is here is enticed by this forbidden woman is because he himself is a senseless and foolish man. We have this woman who sort of functions as a trap to ensnare others, and if that is the case, the man here is sort of pictured as a sort of a senseless mouse, who sort of comes out at night looking for food. There's a reason why God makes us sleepy at night because towards the end of the day we're tired, we have no more self-control and discipline so that we can go to bed rather than stay up and perhaps do senseless and stupid things. This is sort of the picture of a mouse looking for food. He sniffs the peanut butter. I can smell it. I'm hungry. It's appeasing to my appetite. I'm looking, I'm looking, and I'm now I've pinpointed sort of the the, the, where, the, where the scent is strong is. I see this contraption, I don't know what it is, but I can smell the peanut butter right in there, so I'm going to go in there and look at it, and at the moment, it's snared, trapped, he's done for. It's a person who has a sense of a pig who's led by the collar, by their master, thinking they're going for a nice Long stroll in the park, not knowing that they're actually being led to the slaughterhouse. Proverbs 7.21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. And here's the reality. As an ox goes to the slaughter, whereas a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And how does a person escape such people? And the answer is there. The person who fears God escapes that kind of person. And this is the value of wisdom. Not only does it protect you from being that kind of person, but it protects you from those kinds of people in the world. It gives sense. It gives you a sort of a, a, a clear-sightedness about the world. Several years ago, when I went to get an eye exam, sort of randomly, I thought my eyesight was fine. I got an eye exam and come to find out, to my surprise, I needed glasses. And I was just sort of, it's still in self-denial, like, no, I don't need glasses. I've been fine this whole entire time. I read books pretty regularly. I don't think I need glasses. So whatever, did a prescription. I got my prescription. I put those things on and I was like, wow. It was like the world was in high definition. It's like reality on 4K. If you don't know what 4 Quake is, then go to Best Buy to the television section. But it was like, I could actually see like, the individual strands of hair on my wife's head. Like, I was never able to see that before. That's sort of like the value of wisdom. When you value wisdom, when you live in the fear of God, when you look for wisdom and ask God for wisdom and he gives it to you, you have sort of like the, the, like the uh, wisdom instead of a pair of glasses through which you see the rest of the world. You see reality for what it is. You see the illusions of the world. You see what is false. You see what is incorrect. But without those glasses, what is incorrect and what is illusion looks like reality and looks like truth. That's the value of wisdom. And that is that kind of fear that is helpful, that functions as a hedge of protection around our lives to protect us from not only being a senseless people as we wander about in the world, but also protecting us from those who seek to persuade us and compel us and tempt us. So what we see is that when sin enters the picture, when sin enters the equation, the end result is that sin makes righteousness impossible. But then we also know that God has introduced introduced something else into the equation, and that is the person of his Son. And through Jesus Christ, Christ, secondly, makes righteousness possible. So the teacher has these calculations. He's trying to discern. He's trying to discover the schemes of things. He's trying to figure out how all these things work. He's coming to various different conclusions. And one thing that he's found is that, I found one man upright among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. But our argue is not that there isn't a righteous woman anywhere in the world. I think the problem is that he's looking in the wrong place. As intelligent and as intellectual and as wise as King Solomon was, he didn't always have the wisdom to put his own wisdom into action. 1 sorry, First Kings eleven. We see exactly how he failed to apply his own wisdom. First Kings eleven verse one. Now King Solomon li- loved loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. As was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, who, by the way, received as a sacrifice children, as a form of worship on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. We value his wisdom and insight, but let us remember that the word of God is the word of God. And there's a reason why we have a passage like this in the example of Solomon as well in the scriptures is so that we would learn not what not to do so we might see an example of wisdom being failed to, to be applied. No, the reason why he's not able to find a, woman, a righteous woman among many is not because there isn't any, it's because he's not looking in the right place. Instead, he looked for them amongst the world, the ones who did not fear God, the ones who worshipped and idolized other gods, right if you're looking for a spouse or right, you're not going to go into a gentleman's club to find a spouse but this is in a way what he was doing it says he loved all of these women who worshiped other gods and it tells us that they led him astray the problem was with him by the way the new testament new testament equivalent to this is do not be unequally yoked says in 1 Corinthians Right, If you are single, don't go dating someone who isn't a believer, who doesn't have the fear of God in their lives, who doesn't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But regardless of his life and how he failed to apply his own wisdom, I think the main point here is that it is rare, one thing that we can agree with is that it is rare to find an upright or a righteous person. If we consider righteousness in its biblical sense, Then certainly, righteousness is rare indeed. And certainly, if all men bear the image of the first transgressor, and then we all take after our first father, who is Adam, right, then inherent in us isn't any righteousness either. This is why God has sent his son into the world to introduce a different equation to give us sort of this, this alien righteousness through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ comes into the world as our righteousness who went to the cross, died on the cross, and rose again so that anyone who believes in him might then have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.18, it tells us, Therefore, as one trespass by Adam led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous Paul here in Romans and elsewhere is telling us that Jesus and as we had actually sung before that Jesus functions as our second Adam the last Adam that all those who believe in Jesus as the son of God who died on the cross and rose again from the dead that they are no longer represented by the first man who is Adam, but instead they are now represented by the second Adam who is Jesus Christ. That Jesus functions as this new tree that bears fruit unto eternal life. And all those who believe in Jesus, though they are withered branches, they are grafted into this tree so that they might then become alive and vibrant and produce fruit unto eternal life. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty seven says, The first man, that is Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is Jesus Christ. So in God's divine calculation, when he takes the sinner who does not, any, does not have any righteousness within himself and takes the righteous Christ and adds them together, addition, representing faith, what you have then is a, a sinner made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. But when you take a sinner who does not have any righteousness in himself or herself, and add them to the righteous Jesus Christ, or rather subtract from Jesus Christ, representing unbelief, then what you have then is not Jesus as a savior of the sinner, but what you have then is Jesus as a judge of the sinner. So then, let me conclude... With this, I think the main, the main application, the applicational thrust of this passage is he who pleases God escapes the malicious people of the world and also provides a hedge of protection for themselves from becoming a senseless person because the one who fears God is also the one who wears the righteousness of Jesus Christ they have this righteousness about them that is rare in the world because you don't find it anywhere in the world and you don't find it in themselves and himself, or I don't find it in myself, but I only find it in Jesus Christ. That person is rare indeed. If you wear that righteousness today, then you are a rare person indeed because you have something about you that nobody else does and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the main application is to continue to live in a manner that pleases the Lord. Absolutely. But... I do actually want to focus on something else that has to do with pleasing God. When you come to the passage and it says that he who pleases God escapes her, one question is, is it passive? He who pleases God, is that, that, in other words, is 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 it the one who finds pleasure in God or is the one in whom god delights in or finds pleasure in or this is talking about the person who actively works out their lives in order for the pleasure of god so in other words is this talking about the person that god in whom is that is this talking about the person that god is pleased with or is this talking about the kind of person who's in the pursuit of pleasing god and i don't think it necessarily has to be one or the other but i want to focus on is sort of the, the horse before the carriage. That is, God being pleased in us. Because if you want to live your life in a manner that pleases the Lord, it has to first come from the fact that God is actually pleased in you in the first place. Because otherwise, if you don't understand that, if you don't have that through faith in Jesus Christ, If you're not confident of that, then what you will do then is sort of work out your life as a way to try to earn God's pleasure. We will try to work out your life in order to earn God's righteousness or a place in heaven. But it has to begin first with knowing that God is pleased with you. And that then is the incentive to then work out your life in a manner that pleases the Lord. And for some of us, this might be hard to understand or to even to admit ourselves. But that God is pleased with me. Because when we think about that, we immediately think about reasons why God may not be pleased with me. I'm not as good as I should be. I'm not as holy as I should be. I just committed a sin. I'm not as good of a friend as I should be. I'm not as a good parent, good of a parent as I should be. I'm not as good as a husband or wife that I should be. We look for all the different reasons why God should not be pleased with us. In the story of the prodigal son, some of you I'm sure are familiar with in the past, and that story is about so much more than the way I'm about to explain it, so know that beforehand. But in the story of the prodigal son, you have the son who wants his inheritance. Give me my inheritance, which is the equivalent of asking for his father's death. Dad, you're not dead yet, but I'm not waiting to have my inheritance. Can I have it now? He gives him his inheritance, and what does he do? He is this senseless person who goes off and squanders off. All of his inheritance is probably tempted enticed by sinners in the world it ends up down in the dumps, ends up living with the pigs and he comes finally finally in this moment of wisdom, he comes to his senses and he says, let me go back to my father's house even if I could just be a servant is better than my life right now he goes back home father sees him, embraces him and he has he confesses he says, let me be a servant in your house and the father would not have any of that but he dresses him and invites him back home and has a celebration. This is sort of what we do, right, with the gospel. We come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we recognize our sins, our unrighteousness, and we come to apprehend Jesus as our Savior. Isn't it a way of saying, Lord, I'm, I confess my sin. I know that I am a sinner. Lord, would you at least just let me be a beggar in your house? Would you at least let me just stand outside your courts? Anything is better than what my life is right now apart from Jesus Christ. And God says no, we'll not have any of it, but instead he invites you into his home. He gives you new sandals on your feet. He gives you a new robe, the robe of, uh, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he puts a ring on your finger and he invites you to dine with him at his table. When we look to the gospel of Jesus, Uh, the Gospels and Jesus' life and ministry on earth, we see that Jesus is never repelled by sinners. Now, he has some choice words to say to the religious teachers but it's because they were self-righteous. But for those who are sinners, Jesus is not repelled by them, but Jesus is actually drawn to them. He wants to come near to them. My point is, is that we think of so many of the different reasons why God should not be pleased with us when we see time and time again throughout the Gospels when we know the character of God and we know the character of Christ. What this gives us a picture of is someone who actually is attracted to sinners. That when you and I do sin, that Christ isn't repelled by that, but actually Christ is is, is moved to pity. Does not mean that he likes our sin. And he certainly wants us to be rid of sin. And he wants us to, for us also to be, want to be rid of sin. But when we do sin as his sons and daughters, he's moved to pity. And he's drawn still to us in compassion. And some of you need to hear this morning that God is pleased with you. It doesn't matter what you think about your life. It doesn't matter whether or not you wish that you had done more or had done less. Maybe you wish that you could take back some words. Maybe you wish that you could have done things differently. Maybe you had intended that your life would look differently than it does right now. Maybe you're just constantly reminded of how you just don't measure up to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but the Lord wants you to know that He is still pleased with you. King David, some of you know, committed some pretty bad sins in his life. But there's a particular song in 2nd or 1st Samuel, I forget, where he's singing this song of deliverance. And in that song, he says, God rescued me because he delighted in me. Which is quite amazing. Let that be a reminder to you. God is pleased with you. And this is powerful. When we understand that God is pleased with us, when we have this confident assurance that God certainly is delighted in me because I He has adopted me as a son or daughter of God, is this sort of it gives you sort of this, this confidence. it gives you sort of this, this, uh, this assurance that whatever you do for the Lord is, is going to be delightful to the Lord. It's like having a set of wings attached to your back. When you have this confident assurance that God is delighted in you, provides the means to sort of Soar with this wonderful and joyous freedom that comes from knowing that God the Father is delighted in me. The runner and missionary Eric Little had once said, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. The Lord is pleased with us. The Lord is pleased with you as you go to work. The Lord is pleased with you. As you go through the mundanes of raising your children, struggling with disobedience time and time and time again, the Lord is pleased with you. The Lord is pleased with you as you tend to your garden. The Lord is pleased with you as you focus on your education. The Lord is pleased with you wherever you go. Having this assurance that God is pleased with you functions as sort of this powerful resource in your Arsenal against sin and temptation in the world. You want to, find, you want to know what a powerful, way, a powerful way to combat the sin and temptation of the flesh and of the world? Remember that God is pleased with you. When you know that God is pleased with you, irrespective of what you have done or have not done, right, all you want to do is continue to live for him. All you want to do is continue to give your life to him. All you want to do is do everything, whether eat or drink, whatever you do, all to the glory of God because you know that God is delighted in you. When you know that God is pleased with you, then you can live your life in a way that pleases the Lord, not as a way to try to earn his pleasure, but because you already have it through faith in Jesus Christ. So, this is helpful for us to understand and to know. As much as we, as many reasons as we can come up with for why God may not be delighted in us or pleased with us, it just isn't true. But even in our sins, the Lord is moved towards us to pity because He's the merciful and faithful high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses because He knows what it is to be human, He knows what it is to suffer under temptation. He knows what it is to suffer under the pressures of the world. And so he knows the battles that you and I go through, perhaps on a daily basis. And he knows that sometimes, that many times, that we fail. And that we don't do as good as we would like to do. But if if it wasn't our works that brought Jesus into the world to die for our sins, then much less do we expect that our good works will turn away God's delight and pleasure in us. Right? God said to his own son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you might say, well, of course he can say that because he's a son of God. But that's exactly the point. Jesus hadn't even started his ministry yet, and he already had the Father's love because he is the son of the Father. right? If you have children, you know what this is like. right? If you raise children, if you, even if you have an infant, all an infant can do is eat, sleep, throw up, and poop in their diaper. They can't do anything for you. Even as they continue to grow up in their toddler years, there's very little that they can do for you, but you still love them irrespective of what they can or cannot do because that is your son. And because that is your daughter. And that is what the Lord, I think, intends to remind us of this morning. Living to the pleasure of God is our aim. But even this is a desire born in us through and made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in our own calculations, no matter what we did or do, none of this really adds up. But this is why it's God's equation. Christ makes this possible. And we praise the Lord for that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's In some ways, it's just so natural for us to work out our salvation as a means of maintaining your delight in us as a way of earning our place in heaven. Lord, would you help us to just fight against those desires and those tendencies, but help us to just rest in knowing that we are loved by God and that you delight in us. Lord, and help those of us who have a hard time admitting that to ourselves. Lord, would you provide the assistance? Would you provide the confidence to do so? Lord, we pray that that in this, Lord, in this confident assurance that we might also find the means and the power and the strength to fight against the sin that clings so closely in our lives. Knowing that you delight in us, help us to give our lives to you because it is our desire to do so because it is our desire to live for your glory because of who you are and because of what you have done for us. So we pray for divine aid by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.